Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16? You know, Michael W. Smith's song, Friends Are Friends Forever, would aptly express Paul's sentiment as he closes out the book of Romans. Because this is the personal part of his letter, having described his attitude toward himself and his ministry and his dreams in chapter 15, now we come to chapter 16 and he turns his attention to those he's writing to. Now if you look down through this chapter, you'll see that it's filled with names and greetings and personal notes. This is the kind of chapter that we tend to speed read when we come to it in our personal Bible time. This is the kind of chapter we put right up there in priority with the genealogies of the Old Testament. But let me suggest that we miss much if we don't pay closer attention. And one of the things we don't want to miss here is that Paul was a people person. We tend to think of Paul of, in terms of super ministry and great preaching and writing scripture. But you see, when it came right down to it, what really mattered was people. Paul's ministry was to people. The churches he planted were made up of people. His letters were written to people. The body of Christ is people. Paul had a heart for people. Shortly after he completed this letter, he took off on his way to Jerusalem and he stopped in the city of Ephesus and he invited the elders that he'd worked with and ministered with for three years there in Acts chapter 20. And he reminisces about his three years there and he says in verse 19, I served among you with tears. And then he says in verse 31, I admonished you night and day with tears. And if you read the end of that chapter, they have a tearful farewell as they embrace and kiss and shed tears together. You see, Paul was not some stoic, cold, bigger-than-life figure walking six feet off the ground. He was a man of tenderness, a man of emotion, a man of tears. He was a people person. He saw the big picture, and he had his dreams but he knew that those dreams were made up of people. He knew that you reached the world one person at a time. And the people that Paul had a special bond with, the people that he had a special affection for, were people that he had served with, people that he had worked with, soldiers that he had fought alongside. A few years ago, I saw a 60 Minutes report on a soldier in Vietnam. He had befriended another soldier and they'd become good friends, but near the end of their tour in action, his friend had been killed. And he came home and, and about nearly 30 years later, he finally located this man's family and traveled across the United States to tell his wife how special her husband had been and to tell his children about the father that they had very little remembrance of. And here he was nearly 30 years later talking through tears and great emotion about this man. Now why did he care so much? Well, because they had a bonding in striving together for a common cause. 
They had a bonding that was built by being in the trenches together. And if that happens in the physical realm, how much more should that happen in the spiritual realm? Listen to this verse. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think there's an important message there. If you want true unity, if you want true fellowship, it happens when we strive together for that common cause of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there are people I went to Bible college with that I spent a lot of time with. There are people that I played risk with till the wee hours of the morning. There are people I played basketball with. There are people I ate a lot of Chicago deep-style pizza with. And they're just faint memories in my mind. But there are some other people that I went down every Monday night to Cook County Jail with. And every Monday night we shared the gospel with those inmates. And you know what? Those people are still precious to me. They are people that I have a bond with because we were striving together in the gospel. We were in the trenches together, battling in the spiritual battle. Well, Paul knew some people like that. And as he's closing Romans, he thinks of these individuals, and so he adds a P.S. You see, if you look at the end of chapter 15, it ends with the word amen. That means I'm done. People would get up and leave if I said amen. Paul says amen, and then it's as if he thinks about some of these people in the city of Rome. And so what he does here is he adds a P.S. He thinks about these people that he had fought along with. He thinks about these people that were pillar people in the church there. People who were core people. The kind of people you have in every going church. And so he adds this P.S. with a personal touch. We can divide this chapter into five parts. There's a commendation of Phoebe. There's greetings to Rome. There's a warning to Rome. And then there's greetings from Corinth. And then he concludes this chapter with a doxology. First of all, I want us to see a commendation of Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Notice verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea. Now, in those days, there was no post office. So if you wanted to get a letter from Corinth to Rome, somebody had to deliver it. And in this case, this somebody was Phoebe. And since she had never met the people in Rome, they would be a little skeptical when she showed up and said, Hi, I've got a letter from Paul. So in these two verses, Paul includes a commendation of Phoebe who would be delivering the letter. Now, what do we learn about Phoebe? Well, first of all, we see that she's a woman. She's called in verse 1, our sister. We learn as well from that phrase that she is a believer. She is our sister in the body of Christ, in the family of Christ. And then we see that she was a Gentile because she was named after a Greek god. Phoebe is the feminine form of Phoebos, which was a name given to the Greek god Apollo. So we can assume from that that she was raised in a pagan home and then later became a believer. We also know that she's from Sincrea, which is a small town about nine miles south of Corinth. 
And we also learn from verse 1 that she was a servant of the church. Now, there are about six different Greek words for servant. The one Paul chooses to use here is the Greek word diakonos, deacon. Only he uses it in the feminine form. He calls her a deaconess. Now, there's been much debate over whether she is being characterized here as just a servant in general or whether she is being identified here as having some official position in the church. I'm of the opinion that Phoebe had an official position of being a deaconess in the church. And one of the reasons I say that is because it doesn't say here she is a servant of the Lord. It says she is a servant of the church in Sincrea, one particular church. And so it seems to me in the early church government, you had elders who led and shepherded, and then you had deacons and also deaconesses who did what their title meant. They served. And if you want to look into that further, you want a little support, more support for that, look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, where Paul is mentioning the qualifications for deacons, and he lists some specific qualifications for those who are women. Now, I'm not a chauvinist, neither am I a feminist, but I'm a biblicist. I believe what the Bible says. And what does the Bible say to do for this woman in ministry? Three things. Number one, accept her. Notice verse two. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Paul says, open your arms, open your hearts, open your homes. Treat her like you would your own sister. Treat her the way a saint ought to be treated. Accept her. Secondly, assist her. Notice verse 2 continues, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. She'll certainly need a place to stay. She'll certainly need some food. She may need some financial assistance as well. Paul says help her with whatever she needs. Now the implication of this phrase is that Phoebe was already planning to come to Rome or perhaps through Rome on some other business on some other matter that he calls it here. Now, it may have been that she was a businesswoman. She may have been like Lydia, who's described in Acts chapter 16, a seller of purple who traveled around selling purple clothing. She may have been a businesswoman on her way to Rome anyway. Or she may have been in some form of ministry going to Rome. And so essentially what Paul is saying to do for her is, is the very thing he was asking them to do for him in chapter 15 and verse 24, to help him on his way. And so he says, first of all, accept her. Secondly, assist her. And third, appreciate her. Look at the end of verse 2. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. She has been a great help to many people, and Paul says she has been a help to me personally. I mean, think of this ministry alone. This lady packed her bags, and she stuck the original copy of the book of Romans in her suitcase. Now, we, have, we, have, uh, we lose tapes around here sometimes. We have what we call the vault copy or the master 
And when it's gone, we don't have a message anymore. But that's just a message that I give about the book of Romans. This lady had the master, the vault copy of the book of Romans, and she was delivering it to the central Gentile city in the world in that day. What a great assignment. What a great ministry, not only to them in that day, but to us today to preserve this letter for us. So at the top of Paul's list of people is a woman serving in the church. And I think that's a good opportunity for me to say, I shudder to think what the chapel would be like if women weren't serving. Think about what would not be done right now. It would be astronomical. We need to accept the ministry of women like Phoebe, we need to assist the ministry of women, and we need to appreciate the ministry of women. Secondly, we see greetings to Rome. Now, if you look in verses 3 to 16, you see a lot of names. There's nothing sweeter than the sound of your own name. How many people here like to be called, hey, you? That's why we have name tags. I went up to Ruby Row today and called her Phyllis in preparation for this message, so I'm guilty too. But that's why we have name tags, so we can look there and see what their name is, so we can learn their name, because when you learn someone's name, what are you saying? You're important. Well, in verses 3 to 16, Paul greets 26 people by name and several more by inference. Now, today in our day of technology and instant communication, we've got telephones and cell phones and fax machines and email, but I doubt that there are many of us who could name 26 people in another city that we've never been to and not only name them, but know that they're believers and be able to say something about their service for the Lord. Paul could do that. And let's look at who he knew in Rome. Paul starts off by mentioning a famous husband and wife team in verse 3. He says, Greet Prisca, or in other places she's called Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in the New Testament. And typically in, in those days the man was mentioned first, just like in our day. You say Mr. and Mrs. You usually don't say Mrs and mister. And yet four out of the six times that this couple is mentioned, Priscilla is mentioned before her husband, which may say something about this couple. It may say that she was the more out front person. It may say that she was the more prominent person. We know from other passages that they had a ministry together of teaching and discipling. She may have been the stronger teacher of the two. Now, we also know that Priscilla and Aquila's occupation was the same as Paul's, tent maker. They were very intent people. That joke was intentional. <laughs> Paul first met this couple on the job site. When he came to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he met Priscilla and Aquila. They had just arrived from Rome because the emperor there had run all the Christians out of the capital. 
And so Paul stayed with them and he worked with them. And what's interesting is that when Paul then left Corinth and went to Ephesus, they went with him. And then when he left Ephesus and moved on, they stayed in Ephesus. And if you read the last part of Acts chapter 18, you'll find that they were influential in helping to equip one of the most influential preachers of that day, a man by the name of Apollos. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And now we find that they're back in the city of Rome as Paul writes this letter. And Paul says to greet them as my fellow workers. What I like about that is he doesn't single out one or the other. They're both fellow workers. And I think this is a great model of husbands and wives ministering together in the Lord. What did they do together? Well, we already mentioned that in other places we see them teaching and discipling together. In fact, we know that they were people who put their ministry ahead of their business. Something else we learn about them is in verse 4. It says, Who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. They put their life on the line for the apostle Paul. Now that could have been on various occasions because Paul was always in trouble. But it's likely a reference to Paul's return visit to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. That's when, if you read the chapter, a riot broke out in the city, and that riot was led by the silversmiths' union. Because Paul was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was affecting the silversmiths' union because they were making idols in the city. And so they rioted against him. Apparently, Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks to spare Paul. So not only did they put their ministry ahead of their business, they put Paul's life ahead of their lives. And then a third thing we learn about them is in verse 5. It says, also, greet the church that is in their house. For about the first 300 years of the church, there were no church buildings. The church met in houses. One of those houses belonged to Priscilla and Aquila. We also learn in 1 Corinthians 16, 19 that they had a church in their house when they lived in Ephesus. Now, that's one of the things we try to accomplish today through our small groups. We have small groups. We ideally like those small groups to meet in homes. And so my question to you would be, have you ever considered opening your house to a small group? You say, well, we can't. Both of us work. So did Priscilla and Aquila. You say, well, we can't do that. We're both busy in ministry. So were Aquila and Priscilla. And yet they opened their house. You see, they put their ministry ahead of their business. They put Paul's life ahead of their lives. And they put people ahead of their own privacy. Priscilla and Aquila were a great team. They worked together making tents. They worked together serving the Lord. They risked their lives together for, for Paul. They opened their homes together for others. And it cost them a lot. They gave up their business, literally pulled up stakes, and moved to Ephesus. They gave up their lives, laying their lives on the line for the Apostle Paul. And they gave up their time and their privacy by saying, Our house is open for the ministry of the Lord. And because of that, 
Paul can say, they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And then next he mentions a fellow by the name of Apanatus at the end of verse 5. Greet Apanatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. This is the first person Paul led to Christ in Asia Minor that probably would have occurred in the city of Ephesus. How could he forget Apanatus? I remember the first person I ever led to Christ. His name's Bill Cobb. Paul remembers this guy, Apanatus, and he calls him my beloved. He's still special to Paul as all first converts are. But you know what's interesting about this guy? Paul led him to the Lord probably in Ephesus. And it seems obvious to me that he caught a hold of Paul's vision because Paul was always saying, I want to get to Rome. And then I want to get beyond Rome to Spain. I can't wait to get to Rome. I can't wait to get to Rome. Now he writes the letter to Rome and where's Apanatus? He's headed for Rome. He's caught the vision of the Apostle Paul. And then there's a Mary in verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Now Mary was a common name in that day just as it is today. And so we don't know if we've met this Mary before. All we know is she worked hard for you. That's a great testimony. A lot of people work hard for themselves. She worked hard for them. Now note that this is another woman. Three out of the first five people that Paul mentioned are women. And then Andronicus and Junius in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ Jesus before me. Now, four things he says about them. First, he says they're my kinsmen. Now, he may just be saying they're Jewish because he used this term earlier in Romans 9.3 to refer to all the Jews who were my kinsmen in the flesh. Or he may be saying by this term they're of the tribe of Benjamin or maybe they're even part of Paul's close or extended family. They're kinsmen. Second, he says they're fellow prisoners. Now, Paul had been in prison all over the place. Somewhere along the line, these guys were in prison with him. So these are ex-cons with Paul. And then he says they're outstanding among the apostles. That is, they're, they're known and highly thought of by all the other apostles. And then he adds, they're in Christ before me. Paul didn't lead these guys to Christ. They were saved before Paul. They go way back. Which means at one time, Paul was their greatest enemy. At one time, they were on Paul's hit list. Now they're on his prayer list. And here we find them on his greeting list. And then verse 8 says, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Now this is a fellow who's mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. But you know, in one of the earliest Christian catacombs in Rome, there's, a carved, there's carved on a tomb the single name Ampliatus. Now, most of the tombs have three names because Roman citizens always had three names, just like we do today. And so this individual having one name would indicate he was probably a slave. And yet his tomb is one of the most prominent and one of the most decorated tombs in that whole catacomb, which tell us, tells us he was highly esteemed in the early church. It also tells us there was no social distinction 
in the early church. Here was a slave who obviously became a leader. And not only that, he was special to the Apostle Paul who calls him my beloved. And then verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Now, his name comes from a root that we're familiar with, Urban. It may have been a nickname. His nickname is City Slicker. And then it says in the rest of verse 9, and Statius, my beloved. We don't know any more about this guy either, but this is a great thing to know. Paul considered him my beloved. Verse 10, greet Apelles the approved in Christ. He had apparently gone through some severe trial and he had come through it stronger. And Paul says, he's approved. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Now, since this individual is not addressed directly, we have to assume that if Aristobulus was a believer, he's already died. Or we may assume that he is not a believer, but those in his family were believers. Now, there was a guy by the name of Aristobulus in Rome around this time who was the grandson of Herod the Great and a very close friend of the emperor Claudius. May have been this same individual. And then he mentions in verse 11, greet Herodian, my kinsman. Again, that's all we know about him, and I have to wonder if that's the only positive thing Paul could say about this guy. He's related to me. And then he goes on to say, greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Narcissus was the name of the personal secretary of Emperor Claudius. He was the guy that you had to see if you wanted to see the emperor. And history tells us that he amassed a great fortune through bribes because he took bribes to see who could see the emperor. And so he, he gained this great fortune. And then when Claudius was murdered and the new emperor Nero took over, he forced Narcissus to commit suicide and he took over his money and his possessions and his slaves. Which in the Bible, when it talks about a man's family, it's not just talking about his kids, it's talking about his slaves as well. Which makes this kind of interesting if this is the case, because Nero, who was committed to destroying Christians, apparently had some Christian servants right in his inner circle feeding him his food. And then verse 12 says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Now, these are a couple of sisters. Maybe they were even twins. Their names literally mean dainty and delicate, which is kind of a pun here because he says, greet dainty and delicate who work hard in the Lord. These, these, these ladies are dainty and delicate, but they're construction workers for God. And then the end of verse 12 says, greet Persis, that's a feminine name, Persis the Beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, if you go back over this list, you'll notice that every time a woman is mentioned, it either says she's a servant or she worked hard. And if you notice here also, Paul is very diplomatic because this is a lady and he says she is the Beloved, not my Beloved. He doesn't want to get any rumors started. And then verse 13 says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Rufus was a choice man. That means he was special. And Paul says, His mother has been like a mother 
to me. Now, there's no mention in the scripture of Paul's mother. That may be because she was not alive. It may be because he had been ostracized by his family through his own faith in Christ. But you know, there's an interesting note in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. There it talks about Simon of Cyrene. You remember him? He's the guy who carried Jesus' cross up to Calvary. It says about him that he was the father of Rufus. Now, Mark is the gospel written to the Gentiles. And as he's writing to the Gentiles, he adds this little parenthesis so they'll know who Simon of Cyrene is. They say, this is Rufus's dad, because they knew who Rufus was. Now, that creates an interesting story. That would tell us that when Simon came to where he came on that day, in fact, it tells us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, that he was a passerby. That means he was just passing through. But he happened to be at just this point in time when Jesus collapsed under his cross. And they grabbed Simon and they made Simon carry Jesus' cross up to Calvary. And when he got there, I assume he watched what took place at Calvary. And he became a believer along with his wife, who later became like a mother to the Apostle Paul. And they had a son named Rufus, who was a pillar in the church at Rome. And there's a little indication of God's sovereignty at work in the life of this individual and his family. And then it says in verse 14, Greet Asinacris, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren within. This is apparently a reference to another small church. And then verse 15, Greet Philologus and Julia Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Another indication of a small church. But notice this guy, verse 15, Philologus. That, that may have been a nickname because that name means literally Lover of the Word. How would you like that nickname? When I think about him, I think of a lover of the Word because he's so committed to the Word of God. And then verse 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul says, hey, just get up and hug everybody. Now, this directive is repeated five times in the New Testament. So, my advice to you would be don't brush this off as Orientalism. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Make sure it's holy, but greet one another with a holy kiss. You see, four times he said in this passage, you're my beloved. Now he says, don't just say it, show it. Hug somebody from the heart. And then the end of verse 16 says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Paul has just completed a quick tour of the churches and he says they send you their greetings. Now let me just point out four general observations from this list of people. Number one, relationships take top priority. The church is not buildings, it's people. So get to know them, work with them, appreciate them, love them. Relationships take top priority. Second, every individual is important. Paul could have just said, say hi to everyone. Instead, he names them because to Paul, each one is significant. There are no little people in God's family. And then thirdly, people need 
praise. They deserve recognition. Paul had something good to say about just about everybody. You know, sometimes we're stingy with our compliments. Paul wasn't. Because he knew that people who serve the Lord get plenty of discouragement from the enemy. And they need praise. And then fourthly, greeting each other is a Christian duty. We are commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's why one of my favorite times on Sunday morning is the greeting hymn. Because I love to see people shaking hands, patting others on the back, smiling, hugging, greeting each other. The Bible commands it. And then thirdly, we see a warning to Rome in verses 17 to 20. In closing out this great book full of deep truth and profound lessons, Paul has one last parting instruction. Now, what's he going to say? What would you say? The, the last thing you're going to say, this is the thing that's probably going to stick in their minds. What would you say? Remember to tithe. Don't forget to study your Bible. No. He says, don't allow disunity. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. He uses the word urge. That's the same word he used in chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul is begging on this occasion. Now Paul has never been to this church, but he's been around long enough to know that in every church there are certain people who are contentious. Sometimes they want to emphasize their doctrine. Sometimes they want to promote their opinion. Sometimes they want to broadcast their complaints. You've met them. They're people who are just contrary. Now, how do you deal with those people? Paul says, keep your eye on them and turn away from them. Watch out from them, for them and stay away from them. That's good advice. In other words, don't listen to them. Listen, we, we are never obligated to hear a person out when what they are saying is not consistent with Christian speech. If somebody's tearing down the church, tearing down the pastor, tearing down the elders, tearing down a Sunday school teacher, tearing down a worker, tearing down any other believer, we should not listen. What do we do with cranky people, negative people, gossips, troublemakers? Paul says, avoid them. Why? Verse 18, for such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. What is their motive? To please God? No. Their motive is to please themselves. Their real master is, what it literally says here, is their, their real master is their belly. That's a vivid picture. They're really just self-serving and trying to make themselves look good. Now let me add a footnote. There will be times when you have a legitimate complaint. There will be times when you will be offended. That happens in every family. And when that happens, you've got to go to the right person and resolve it. But Paul is here talking about the person who goes to all the wrong people 
And he only wants to flatter and deceive and manipulate and divide. And Paul says those persons are to be avoided because unity is a priority in the body of Christ. And then he adds a second warning in verse 19. He says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Paul says, Everybody's hearing about your testimony of obedience, and it brings me great joy, but here's a warning. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You tr see, true wisdom is selective. There are some things I don't want to be an expert in. And one of those is the area of evil. You see, you don't have to know every detail of the wicked things that are going on in this world. Somebody told me early as a Christian, you don't have to stick your head in a trash can to know it stinks. See, I, I don't have to be streetwise. I need to be heavenwise. And he says, I want you to be wise about what's good. I want you to be naive. I want you to be able to still blush about evil. And so Paul's warning is, stay away from divisive people and evil. And if you do, what's the result? Verse 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now notice what he says about God. He's the God of peace in contrast to dissensions. And then notice what he says about Satan. He's under your feet. That's interesting. A church that concentrates on unity and good has Satan under its feet. And he says God will soon come and crush him there. And in the meantime, Jesus' grace be with you. And then fourthly, he gives greetings from Corinth in verses 21 to 24. Notice verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Timothy we know fairly well. He was like a son to Paul. He was his right-hand man. Lucius is probably Lucius of Cyrene, one of the prophets and teachers mentioned in Acts 13 in the city of Antioch. Jason may be the fellow mentioned in Acts 17 who suffered for showing Paul hospitality in the city of Thessalonica. Sosipater may be the man referred to in Acts 20 as Sopater of Berea who traveled with Paul taking the contribution of the Gentile churches to the city of Jerusalem. And then verse 22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius is Paul's secretary. He, he didn't write this letter. He dictated it. And Tertius, who's writing it down, pauses and says, hi. Now, Tertius literally means third. His name means third. He was probably a slave. But he was an educated slave. And he's Paul's secretary. And then verse 23 says, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. Gaius may be one of the two people mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14 that Paul baptized in Corinth. 
He is Paul's host on this occasion. Erastus was an influential man in Corinth because he was the city treasurer. And Quartus literally means four. He's called the brother. He's probably Tertius's brother. So Paul says, number three wrote the letter. Number four says, I. And then verse 24 may be in your margin. It really repeats what he said earlier in verse 16. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so Paul sends greetings to everybody. Man, woman, Jew, Greek, free, slave. Now what do we learn from a passage like this? There are a whole lot of names here. Some of them we know very little about. A lot of them we wish we knew more about. But I would say to you that this passage, this list, is not just a relic from the past. It's a list of friendships that we will make in heaven. Because we're going to spend eternity with these people. And so I have a plan. When we get to heaven and everybody's running up to Peter and Paul, I'm going to find this guy, Sosipater. And ask him how he came to know the Lord and the Apostle Paul and give me the whole story about his background. Well, let me close by asking you this question. You know, if Paul were writing this letter in our day to our church, you think he would mention you in his list? And if he did mention you, what kind of brief statement would he make about you? Would it be positive or would it be negative? Would he consider you a fellow worker, beloved, one who risked his neck, one who worked hard, a choice person? I trust that he would. And if he can't today, then you've got some ground to make up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that reminds us that in Scripture you put a priority on people, not just people, but on their names and on what they did. And it's recorded here 2,000 years ago, helping us realize that everything we do for you, you notice and you care about and you will reward. And Father, I pray that we might learn from the individuals we looked at today to set our priorities where you set your priorities. Lord, 2,000 years from now, we don't want it to be said that he was a workaholic in his business, that she was somebody who worked hard for herself. Lord, we want it to be said that we were beloved by those who serve you, that we worked hard, that we were fellow workers with those in the trenches for the kingdom of God. Father, help us to realize what true unity is. It's striving together in service to you. Father, to that purpose, we pray that you would bond us together as a church that will accomplish great things in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.